When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Youngstown has a bad history, no question about it. Lots of murders, bombings, you name it. Some of them guys that got killed, I knew. But that's the way it is. My producer, Catherine, and I are sitting with Emil Dinzio, the bank robber from the last episode, in a restaurant just outside of Youngstown. At one time, this restaurant was a bank. Did you rob this bank, Amy? Oh, no, there won't be enough money. (laughs) (laughs) Amos seems to know everybody here. He got us a table inside the bank's vault so we could talk out of earshot. Certain things I can't say things about, you know what I'm trying to say. Because I don't spread business around anyhow. I'm hoping to get Amos to talk about a bank job he did back in 1972. A heist that made him world famous. I want to talk about Laguna. Laguna Nigel, bank burglary? Yeah. The Laguna Nigel bank heist was one of the largest and most daring burglaries in American history. The perfect heist is called, okay? And when the heist was over, Emil told reporters that there was an amazing story behind it, an unbelievable story that he would tell someday. The story is a big story, if you knew it all. Start at the beginning. How'd you find out there was even money in that bank? I mean, who pointed to that bank and said, that's a good bank? My friend in Cleveland, Ohio, Butchie Sesterino, he was one of the Mayfield Road gangs up there, okay? They call them the Turks. Emil's story begins in 1972 at his friend Butchie's dice game in Cleveland's Little Italy neighborhood. There was so much money in that Cleveland game, he'd say, any effing pistols on your bodies, leave them in your car. There ain't gonna be no shooting going on in here. Everybody around the table throwing up 2,000, 4,000, 5,000 bucks. I'd like to throw five, 10,000 out there. Big money, big money. But that night, Emil isn't just there to roll bones. He's there to see Butchie about some business. I knew Butchie real good for many years ago. We did a few things that I'm not gonna talk about, but we did a few things and I became very close with him. After a while, Butchie pulls Emil aside to talk. He says, I think I have a score you might be interested in. Emil and Butchie drive across town to meet with another guy, farther up the mob ladder. We went and had a sandwich up on Mayfield Road, and uh, that's when I saw Jack White. Jack White Licavoli was the underboss of the Cleveland mob. He ran the rackets and had a deep influence in the labor unions. And if Jack White knew about a score... It had to be big. After Butchie talked to him for a while, he came back and talked to me. 
White had gotten a tip from a reliable source in the Teamsters Union. There was a little bank out in California, few cops, low security. A quick job for the right thief. But this wasn't your average bank job because of whose money they were after. He said, how would you like to steal 30 million from Richard Nixon? I'm Mark Smerling. Welcome to Crooked City. Jamestown was known as a steel town, and everybody had an image of a steel town as being a rough, rotten, no-good town. We get our money from working. If you could get it without it, I guess you're admired. Money talks and bullshit walks. We had so much money, I didn't care if we needed more money, we'd just go get it. Started burglarizing, using my alarm knowledge to bypass the alarms. Nobody was beating bank vaults, believe me when I tell you. And we were the only ones doing it. Chapter 2, The United California Bank Heist. So how did the Cleveland mob find out that President Nixon had $30 million stashed in a bank in California? According to Emil Dinzio, it all started with this guy. Teamster boss James Hoffa surrenders to U.S. Marshals to begin serving at prison term for jury tampering. Jimmy Hoffa was the leader of the powerful Teamsters Labor Union, one of the largest unions in the country, The Justice Department had long suspected that Hoffa and his union had ties to the mob. And in the late 60s, Hoffa was finally convicted of jury tampering. He got a 13-year jail sentence. Hoffa arrives at federal prison in Lewisburg, Pennsylvania. He said his attorneys would continue his fight while he's in jail. While Hoffa was in prison, President Richard Nixon was running for re-election. This will be a great victory. We win elections to get the opportunity to do good things for our country. Hoffa knew that a re-elected Nixon was the only person who could get him out of prison, and he thought he could buy himself a pardon if he made a donation to Nixon's campaign. He told uh, Nixon that they would make a healthy contribution. Hoffa's lawyer later confirmed that donation in a TV documentary. What he told me was he delivered a million dollars in cash. Who did he give it to? Uh, John Mitchell, the attorney general. There's no question in my mind about that at all. Around that time, Attorney General John Mitchell ended up meeting in private with Nixon to discuss Hoffa. Their conversation was caught on the notorious Watergate tapes, recordings that Nixon made himself in the Oval Office. Nixon says he wants to go over, quote, a couple things about this Hoffa thing. What we're talking about in the greatest of confidence. We're going to give Hoffa amnesty. But we're going to do it for a reason. He has served his time. It's the day before Christmas, 1971, and President Nixon has commuted Jimmy Hoffa's 13-year sentence. How's it feeling, Charlie? Oh, wonderful. Very good indeed. Hoffa got out of prison with Nixon's help. But there was a catch. Nixon banned Hoffa from serving as president of the Teamsters Union. And according to legend, Hoffa wasn't happy. So he sent out a tip. There was a little bank in Laguna Niguel, California. 
a bank where all of Nixon's dirty money was kept. Millions, just waiting for someone to come and take it. That tip made it to the Cleveland Mafia, and then to Butchie Sisterino in a sandwich shop. And Butchie told Emil Dinzio from Youngstown. Butchie told me about Richard Nixon money out in California. He even came up with the safety deposit box numbers, two of them. He said the money will be in them. Now, you know you're getting good information to come up with shit like that. There's no question Hoffa put that score out. I gave it a thought, you know, and it sounded good to me. That's a lot of money, 30 million, right? Now, Emil had to get a team together. Emil Dinzio called me and wanted to know if I wanted to go on a score in California. This is Phil Christopher. In our last episode, Phil was a young thief learning his trade. Now he's being called up to the big leagues. I was called in to bypass the alarms. Guys knew that that was my specialty. Amos said, well, it's a pretty wealthy area. Might be getting a lot of valuables out of there. Uh, I said, well, sure. But Amos didn't tell Phil what he was really after. Nixon's millions. Amos gathered the rest of his gang, his older brother James, to help with the explosives, and his brother-in-law, Charlie Mulligan, the lookout and driver. Me and James and Chuck Mulligans. That's the only one who knew what we were really after. With the team together, it was time to go to California. They landed in Los Angeles, and Chuck Mulligan bought a gold Oldsmobile, registered to a fake name. In the robbery trade, they called this a blow car. They checked into a flophouse called the Jubilee Inn, then drove to Laguna Niguel in the blow car to scout the bank. Most people driving by wouldn't even notice this bank. It was in a shopping plaza next to the Pacific Coast Highway. Cops didn't even come through there. I didn't see none of them. We watched it for a couple days, checked out the area, see how the police moved. We never went in the bank in the daytime to do business. All we ever did at night was just look through the front window like, see where the vault is. It really was a sitting duck there. They moved out of the Jubilee Inn and into a condo on the golf course, a short walk to the bank. They needed three nights to disarm the alarms, blow open the vault, and break into all the safety deposit boxes. They do the job over a weekend when the bank was closed. But there was a slight problem. It really looked good, except that drugstore right next to it. The drugstore was open late, which would limit their time in the bank. But Phil Christopher was confident. This is like chicken cake from a baby. It's Friday, night one. The sun sets on the sleepy town of Laguna Niguel. My brother-in-law, Chuck, he was in the bushes on the hillside there. And he was our lookout. He had a walkie-talkie, which we had a walkie-talkie, too. And he could see the whole area, you know, if anything coming. Chuck Mulligan peers through his binoculars as the last employee leaves the drugstore. The coast is clear. We went out the back door of the condo and we walked to the golf course and made our way down to the bank. This bank had two alarms. One was outside and would ring for everybody to hear, and the other was silent and would call the police. Emil climbed the ladder to disarm the outside alarm. I used the drill, put it in reverse, spin the bolt out real quick. He pulled out a can of liquid styrofoam. Shove it up in that hole and turn it on. <laughs> Fill it right up, quick. Now the banger, it can't ding. 
Now it was time to deal with the silent alarm. Me, Amo, and James went up on the roof. Cut a hole in the roof right above the vault. Looking down, they could see an 18-inch thick concrete slab, the top of the vault. We leased our way down on top of the roof of the vault. We didn't want to jump because we didn't know if there was a sensor or anything like that that would set the alarm off. They started looking for wires to bypass the silent alarm. Looking around for anything that resembled uh, telephone lines or something like that, we couldn't find alarm wires. We're all scratching our head, you know, where's it at? In an hour or so, someone would show up to open the drugstore next door. Instead of taking a chance, they decided to call it a night. We put the board back over the hole, we covered it up real nice, got down on the ground, grabbed our tools and everything in our bag, we made it back up the hill. This was a big problem. If Phil and Emil couldn't figure out how to beat the bank's alarm system, the entire heist would be a failure. They would have to head back to Youngstown empty-handed. We got back to the condo. I was all geeked up over everything. I said, I'm going to go for a jog. I went out to the back onto the golf course, and I started jogging. Nice night, uh, beautiful. And I'm thinking, what could this be? Thought about this, thought about that. And then it dawned on me, we didn't check for the old type of system. When I got back to the condo, I says, you know, we never checked for that. We checked for the most up-to-date system in the bank. And they says, oh, you know, Phil, you got a point there. Night two, the guys go back up on the roof. Me and Amo went down inside. Sure enough, it is just what I said. So we cut the lines, boom, boom. Now we're ready to go to work. Drilling the holes to get in the ball. Emil and his brother James start drilling holes into the 18-inch thick concrete. Our drill we made ourselves, it turned, I think, 2,200 RPMs. You drill the five holes in a circle like, one hole in the middle, put the dynamite down in the hole there. They wired together the sticks of dynamite. Then they covered the holes with bags of sand. It will be like a silencer muffles the sound. They're ready to blow the vault. Everybody steps back. It's not loud at all. The bags will jump up near about eight inches and come right back down. You move the bags, you look straight down to the floor of the vault. Cut the rebars out, drop a ladder and go on down in. Welcome to True Spies, the podcast that takes you deep inside the greatest secret missions of all time. Suddenly out of the dark, it's appeared Bin Laden. You'll meet the people who live life undercover. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? Vengeance felt good. Seeing these people pay for what they'd done felt righteous. True Spies from Spyscape Studios, wherever you get your podcasts. Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that, trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise. 
the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. March 25th, 1972. Bank robbers Emil Dinzio and Phil Christopher have just blown a hole through the top of a bank vault in Laguna Niguel, California. Now let's freeze for a second. When Emil and Phil talk about the now infamous Laguna Niguel heist, their stories are mostly the same, but not always. Here's Emil's version of what happened next. Emil says that when they blew open the vault, Phil was behind the bank, on lookout, and that he and his brother James were the only two on the roof. They dropped into the bank vault and hit the lights. Hundreds of stainless steel safety deposit boxes shimmered around them. Quickly, they scanned the engraved numbers on the boxes and stopped on the ones they'd been told had Nixon's money in them. One smack with a 10-pound sledge just knocks the lock right off the back. They just pop right open like a poppin' flower, you might say, or something. He slid out a heavy metal box and took the lid off. Inside were brown paper packages. According to Emil, the packages contained bound wads of cash. You're talking $500 bills, $1,000. Then you had the brand new $100 bills. There was no $30 million. Okay, there was 12 Still, a lot of money. They dumped the 12 million into two sacks. Now they had to get those sacks out of the vault without Phil Christopher seeing. He was behind the bank. We just came right back out on the roof, went down the roof. There's a big long hill down the Pacific Coast Highway. We just went down here and we stuck it just in the weeds there. Nobody knew it. Nobody knew it. Phil Christopher's version of what happened that night is different. He says he was right there with Emil when the vault blew and they went in together. We all went down in a hole. It was exhilarating, looking at all these safety deposit boxes. We take turns, Emil and I. Sometimes he do the hammering, and sometimes I do the hammering. It's exhausting. They smashed into box after box, where hundreds of people had stored their most valuable possessions. So much sweat coming down me, the salt was burning my eyes. Good thing they didn't have uh, DNA back then could have found us quick from all the sweat that we left in there. They found cash, savings bonds, and jewelry, and even some more surprising things. Somebody's ashes. You know, their remains. Are you kidding me? Put it back! Put it back! According to Phil, he and Amo were together the entire time, and none of the safety deposit boxes contained millions in cash. But one thing they both agree on. After hours of looting the boxes, they ran out of time they'd have to come back the following night to finish. It's Sunday, the gang's last night to rob the bank. It's clear and cool. The ocean can be heard slapping against the beach. Emil, his brother, and Phil are back in the vault. And now, the clock is ticking. The most working time is when you pull a box out and throw it on the table, you gotta go through it, you know? Yeah. And you gotta kind of work fast. As the night wore on, a call came over the radio from Mulligan, their lookout. Something just pulled in front of the building. And we stopped. Something pulled in front of the building. What's he doing? Oh, he's just sitting there. We're wondering, what the hell is this? You know, we're ready to fly out of the hole, you know. We got all this stuff here. What are we going to do, you know? 
He's getting out of the car. He's going to the door. He's opening the door. He's going inside. Maybe 10 minutes to go by. I think it was 15 minutes to go by, right? We're, we're just beside ourselves. Oh, 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 oh. We didn't know what to do. We were just so quiet, you could hear a pin drop. We could hear shuffling around out there. While, while we were listening for the guy trying to be so quiet, somebody coughs inside the vault. They wanted to strangle him. Then he wants to cough again. I put my hand over his tongue. We nearly threw him up through a hole. And we're listening, you know. Inside of the vault, we still could hear him. He's coming out. This guy's a cleanup guy. This guy's a cleanup guy, we said, you know. It's a cleanup guy. Walking out, he's getting in his car and he's taking off. Jesus Christ almighty. So it's starting to get late now, you know, before you know it, it's going to be in light. We've been in there quite a few hours now, so we thought that uh, that's enough. We're leaving. But before they left, Emil jammed the vault door, which would buy them extra time in the morning. So we packed up all our stuff, and a couple of bags were so big it looked like, a, looked like Santa Claus. They hauled the loot back to the condo and dumped it out on the floor. Fistfuls of jewelry with diamonds and other precious stones. Savings bonds were thousands each. We had a lot of gold coins, lots of them. There was a five-gallon bucket full. You couldn't lift the bucket, I'm not lying. You couldn't lift the bucket. There was like 14 or 16 million. And anyways, I said, you know, I'm exhausted. So they told him, Phil, go sleep, go sleep. Emil says he and his brother James had hidden Nixon's millions in the weeds by the grocery store. Now they needed to go get it without Phil knowing. So then in the morning early, we just wanted to tell them, guys, we're going to take a check on the bank. We just went down, pulled right in there, picked up the money. It was time to head home to Youngstown. But before they went to the airport, they needed to find a place to stash the blow car. Charlie Mulligan called an old army buddy who lived a few towns over. His name was Earl Dawson. We put the Joe Blow cart that uh, had all the tools and everything that we used on the score in Dawson's garage. Me and Charlie got the plane out of California back to Cleveland. Hey, gentlemen, ready for departure. Flight please take a seat. I always used to say, I'm going to be a millionaire by 30. You know, here I was, 29 years old, on the plane. I said, Charlie, I thought you would be a millionaire before long. And he said, yeah, yeah, you're right, you're right. But nothing illegal goes on forever. Sooner or later, something's going to happen. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory, 
From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes. One Monday morning in March of 1972, I got a call from the United California Bank in Laguna Niguel, some guy telling me he can't get into the vault. This is Frank Calley. In 1972, Frank was an FBI agent in one of the smaller field offices in Los Angeles. I told him to call the, his alarm company, his vault people. Also suggested he go up on the roof and take a look to see if there'd been a, any attempt to get into the bank. Frank and his partner headed over to the bank to check it out. We looked around the bank on the outside, looked at the external alarm. That did not activate looked like liquid styrofoam was inside there. And uh, we went up onto the roof, and we could see where entry had been forced. It was somebody who had a lot of knowledge. It was very professionally done. This was not committed by anybody local. You didn't have to be a, a, a Phi Beta Kappa to figure that one out. We got to take a look at the vault. There was all kinds of white dust from the concrete, we just said, we got a lot of work ahead of us. We sent out a communication to all FBI officers around the country, giving them the details of our burglary. Have you had any similar burglaries? Do you have any suspects? And we eventually heard back from Cleveland that there was a gang operating out of Youngstown, Ohio, referred to as the Dinzio Gang. We found out that they had flown out to California just a little bit before our burglary. So now we knew we were on the right track. Now we had to prove it. FBI agents fanned out across L.A. They interviewed bank employees. They canvassed hotels and bars. One agent, he hit the Jubilee Inn, I believe it was called. That was a flea bag hotel. It's just a flop house. And lo and behold, he finds out that the Dinzio stayed at that hotel down there for a period of time. We checked the phone calls that were made while he was at the Jubilee Hotel. A call was made to an individual by the name of Earl Dawson. Earl Dawson. The gang had stashed the blow car in Earl Dawson's garage. The only record I could find for Dawson is that he's a retired Marine, and his place of birth was Youngstown, Ohio. The bell went off in my brain. I said, ah, now I finally got something that looks good. He's from Youngstown. That's where the rest of these guys are from. Back in Youngstown, Emil Dinzio got a call from a crooked cop. He was the vice squad uh, from the sheriff's department. He said, you been to California lately? I said, no. He said, well, you better check it out out there because your name's being kicked around. I swallowed my Adam's apple. So I got a hold of Chuck Mulligan. I said, Chuck, you got to run to California. Get rid of that effing car. Earl Dawson been arrested a couple of times at a bar called the Walnut Room in Tustin. That was his local hangout. And we go in there and... Conway and I were wearing our J. Edgar Hoover suits, looking pretty sharp. I spotted Dawson right away. He comes over and says, uh, you guys looking at me? And I said, yeah, Earl, we need to talk here, and it's going to take some time. How about going to your house? He said, sure. 
We got to his house, he sat down, and we started uh, chatting with him a little bit. I showed him some of these pictures. He looks at him and says, yeah, I know this guy. That's Emil Dinzio, Jim Dinzio. It, oh, this Mulligan, that's my old buddy from Youngstown. Shortly thereafter, the phone rings. Dawson answers, and he cups the receiver, and he points to the phone, and he mouths the word Mulligan to me. Mulligan's the caller. So I put my hand on top of his. I said, do I have your permission to listen into the conversation? He said, yes. So Mulligan said, has the FBI been around looking for me and for anybody? He said, no, they have, why should they be? And I knew that then and there he was on our side because he could have said, yeah, they're right here right now. And then Mulligan said, I'm going to fly in tonight, Earl. I'm going to fly in. I want to get rid of that car in the garage. He says, why tonight? He says, before the FBI comes out there, I want to get rid of the car. Earl tells Mulligan to meet him at the Walnut Room after he lands. I went down to the Walnut Room, sat in the bar like just pretend I was a regular bar patron, drinking a few beers. Later on in the evening, Mulligan showed up. I walked up to Mulligan and identified myself and told him, Mulligan, you're under arrest. You could tell he was used to having cuffs on. Back at Earl Dawson's, another team of agents opened up the garage and found the blow car. The trunk had a uh, false bottom on it, and inside the false bottom there's all kinds of burglary tools in there, a shotgun and a drill, all were covered with concrete dust. In Ohio, the FBI knocked on Phil Christopher's door. They came in my house, and he's going through the closet, and he's shaking down. He said, oh, what we found here? At the bottom of it, I had uh, 30 thousand dollars in cash. So anyways, they grabbed me and locked me up. Days later, the FBI arrested Emil Dinzio at a house on the outskirts of Youngstown. The residence was searched, and they located all kinds of burglary tools, a gold coin that we were able to trace to the bank burglary, $98,000 in cash was found buried in a vacant lot across the street. But they didn't find anything close to $12 million. According to Emil, he and his brother had stashed Nixon's money, where the FBI would never find it. We had the farm under that phony name. And in the barn, we had the big plastic trash cans. So we buried them cans and then put dirt back over top and bales of hay. Looks just like stuff stacked up, you know. In the end, Emil did eight years, and Phil did seven for the Laguna Niguel heist. As for the millions Emil says he stole from President Nixon, Agent Frank Kelly doesn't believe it was ever there to begin with. In fact, Kelly doesn't buy the whole Nixon heist story at all. Everybody that had a deposit box in that bank was interviewed, and I interviewed a lot of them, and Nixon wasn't included in that, nor Hoffa, nor anybody known to them. I don't think anybody in a sound mind would believe it. If Emil told me the correct time, I wouldn't believe him. Honest to God, that's the truth. We may never know if Jimmy Hoffa tipped off the mob about Nixon's dirty money. But what we do know is this. At the present time, we have no information as to the present whereabouts of Mr. Hoffa. We have no information that he is living or dead. A few years after the heist, Jimmy Hoffa went missing. His body has never been found. And as for President Nixon... Five people have been arrested and charged with breaking into the headquarters of the Democratic National Committee. 
In June of 1972, the same month Emil was arrested, the Watergate scandal broke. Well, I'm not a crook. I've earned everything I've got. Watergate toppled Nixon's presidency. And in the ensuing investigation, it came to light that Nixon took many bribes in exchange for favors. American Airlines made an illegal corporate contribution. A secret $200,000 contribution. Former head of the country's biggest dairy cooperative pleaded guilty today to putting the U.S. government on the block like a side of beef. And all that money had to go somewhere. Maybe Nixon squirreled it away in a little bank in Laguna Niguel, California. That was a good stash we had. And they never found it? No. To this day, they don't know where it is. I know where it is. Next time on Crooked City. The Youngstown area is facing a very dismal holiday and unhappy new year. The closing of Briar Hill will cost 1,400 steel workers their jobs. As Youngstown suffers the collapse of the steel industry, the mob goes to war. I'd wake up and go to work and I'd turn the radio on in the news and every week or two somebody else was killed. And a local hero is born. Youngstown now has an opportunity to become the fine city that it really is. Crooked City is a production of Truth Media in partnership with Sony Music Entertainment. The show is produced by Catherine Sullivan, Zach St. Louis, Alexa Burke, and Olivia Briley. Ryan Swikert is our senior producer. Story editing is by me, Mark Smerling, and Ryan Swikert. Kevin Shepard is our associate producer. Scott Curtis is our production manager. Johnny Cecatelli, our local producer in Youngstown. Fact-checking by Donia Suleiman. George Draping Hicks did the mix. Sound design by George Straving Hicks and Ryan Swiker. Music by Kenny Kusiak and Marmoset. Our title track is Hurricane Heart Attack by The Warlocks. For more about the Laguna Niguel heist, check out Emil Dinzio's book, Inside the Vault, or Phil Christopher's memoir, Super Thief. Continue the conversation with us online by tweeting at Crooked City Pod. That's at Crooked City Pod. If you've enjoyed Crooked City, don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes. It really helps other people find the show. And thanks for listening. Crooked City.